Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I think it's easy to say the place is cursed because look at the shambles. So it was going to be a Sheraton, and Sheraton at the time was a luxury hotel brand with a worldwide distribution. Money laundering construction projects elsewhere in the world were being guaranteed, underwritten by the same Italian government agency. A hotel on the Cook Islands, which has been sitting vacant for the last 10 years after the Italian construction company contracted to build it collapsed, will finally be completed at the cost of... A holiday resort that almost bankrupted a country, a cursed piece of land. Two suspicious deaths, mafia rumours and a $50 million building project that led to an exodus from the Cook Islands. I'm Koro Vakauta, and you're listening to Untold Pacific, a five-part series exploring dark corners of Pacific history. And in this fourth episode, we head to the Cook Islands. It's been about 20 years since the failed attempt to build a five-star luxury Sheraton Hotel in Raratonga nearly bankrupted the Cook Islands. And questions around its failure still continue. And that's why we're telling this story. Because while it's long been out of the headlines, it's never really gone away. The complexities of its failure go back further than 1987, to a time when mass tourism was just kicking off globally. Two boys are ploughing. This is Peter Vere Jones presenting NZBC's radio documentary, Which Way to Paradise, in 1970 driving the small brown ponies between rows of arrowroot, manoeuvring the plough skillfully and vocally around the intruding coconut palms. Will they be as happy working their plot in two or three years' time when the glitter of tourism brings the promise of easy money? Tourism was set to change the Cook Islands landscape. The question was, and still is, what impact will that have on the local economy and who benefits? The group was declared a British protectorate in 1888, in something of a flurry to prevent French occupation. Thirteen years later, it was annexed to New Zealand, lying 1,600 miles to the southwest. A scheme for European settlement was set up. It failed. Basically because Cook Islanders didn't want to part with their land, which is a pretty fair call. And we'll see with the Sheraton Hotel how tricky it was to sell and rent land but we'll get into that in a moment. 
The Cook Islands is an independent self-governing country made up of 15 islands with a population of around 17,500. It's in free association with New Zealand, which means Cook Islanders are citizens of both their own islands and New Zealand. So our traditional system is going to survive in a new atmosphere where everybody have basic rights. Born in Rarotonga, Yaveta Short established the first law firm in the Cook Islands. In 1978, he became the youngest ever cabinet minister in a Cook Islands government and later moved to New Zealand in the mid-80s as high commissioner for the Cook Islands in Wellington. In 1903, Papua New Guinea had a set of laws. The lands were allocated and no one can sell land. You cannot partition and disown your own people. Owning land, so the Cookans copied those、uh, rules. At the time, many leases were granted to Europeans on the island. You could almost see a bit of a jackup there with the courts allocating the lands to chiefs and. Families, with the understanding that there would be a lease granted. Historically, land has been passed down the generations. Those who own the land can lease it out. The total land belongs to the people. Mike Tavioni is a renowned Cook Islands artist and cultural icon. He frequently serves as an advisor to the government and the Aronga Mana traditional leaders on cultural, social, and economic issues. Now, Ariki can be either male or female. And the reason you need to know this is because they hold the title to a lot of land. You could see them as guardians of it. And the Paariki is the supreme chief of all. She's like an equivalent of a queen in the islands. The current Paariki is Paariki Upokotini, the one who owns the land that'll soon be a point of contention in this story. So hold tight. The Ariki is just a figurehead. Your land rights starts from one coast to over the mountains to the other coast. The Ariki have title lands. The title land is where you live. Spring of water, but really that belongs to everybody. In the Cook Islands, there are about 24 Ariki or chiefs spread across 15 islands. So who owns the land and who has the right to lease it? And what are some of the complicated obstacles that get in the way? The land should supply the people with their basic needs: food, shelter, and water. But you see, the land could be leased by the title holder. But what makes these leases so complicated is that they were long, and I mean really long. We're not talking five years, not even ten or twenty. You can lease a piece of land in Rarotonga for ninety-nine years, but you can never sell it. Lawyer Yaveta Short again. All of these lands that were leased to Europeans were used. For economic and agriculture growing, it helped boost the economy of the country. And one of these long leases was held by a European settler called William Wigmore. We'll get to his story shortly. There's only a few of these leases, and this was one of them. The land rules are complex, yes, but it makes sense to ensure that the land stays in indigenous hands. In the early 20th century, there had been some clashes between Paariki, the paramount chief who claimed the land at the time, against a rival clan who also claimed ownership over that same piece of land that Wigmore was leasing. So this is really about Paariki power versus who gets to sell and lease the land. William John Wigmore was an early European settler from New Zealand, 
who'd come to the island to set up a copra plantation. In 1910, an argument erupted between him and the landowner, More Uriatua, who wanted to cancel the lease. While the land was in Whitmore's possession, one of the landowners was the crew on the whaling ship. William Wigmore had an argument with the landowner who, on his return with his son, wanted the land back off Wigmore, but he refused. Rungumori is his name. Rungumori came back with his uh, son, Mori Urito. And that's when things got out of hand. And you have to remember that Wigmore had just signed a deal for that really, really, really long lease. Went back and asked for his land back. So Wigmore grabs his rifle, and then... And then he was shot. All he did was ask for his land back. Wigmore claimed the shooting was an accident, and that he had, in fact, aimed for a chicken, but had missed. According to Mike, there were a couple of versions as to why Wigmore shot Mori. One was that he was trying to steal chickens. But why should he go that far to steal a chicken in his church clothes. And the other one is, oh, he was trying to peep around for Wigmore's wife. But why should he shoot at least an older man? Anyway, there was no court case. No one really knows why Wigmore shot Mori, but he served a short jail sentence, then skipped the country. He headed to New Zealand and then moved to Tahiti, And remarkably, he returned three years later in 1913, going back to that same piece of land, refusing to give up the lease. And that's when Mori's daughter Metua placed a curse on the land, which would bring bad luck to whoever tried to do business on it. That exact piece of land, years later, was where the Sheraton was going to be built. Following the shooting, land leasing laws changed. Back to Yaveta again. 1915, Cook Islands Act was passed and all the land laws of the Cook Islands was established in that one act. They limited the lease to 60 years. You cannot sell land. You cannot even will land away. It has to be succeeded. You've got five kids, five shares. Ten kids, ten shares. Succession of land also comes with its own set of issues because many Cook Islanders now live in New Zealand, leaving the responsibility and care of family land in the hands of one or two family members. Now we'll come back to the story of Paariki's land, the one leased out to William Wigmore, in just a bit. Because when tourism kicks off in the Cook Islands, big ideas begin to blossom. It's going to bring new wealth and the promise of a bright future. But does that mean Cook Islands' culture becomes nothing more than window dressing and performances for tourists rather than a way of life? Back to the archival audio from Which Way to Paradise. The Reverend Bernard Thurgood of the Cook Islands Christian Church. Song and dance, there is a fair amount of culture still left from the old days. Today, this is something which is going to be uh, worked at very hard, I think, for the sake of Cook Islands presenting a faithful picture to tourists. I think it's possible to do it in a limited degree with small groups of dedicated people. But I think where you have uh, a few really interested people, they can remember, they can act out, 
the, the things of their ancestors with real interest and real appreciation. By the mid-1980s, tourism was already the Cook's primary industry and the country's leaders wanted to take it to the next level. And that's where Wigmore's land comes in. The proposal was offered to the Cooks to build a five-star luxury hotel that would attract a different kind of tourist. It was big, brand new and exciting. The Cook Islands Ministry of Finance estimated in 2019 that tourism there normally makes up 65 to 70% of the local economy. That's obviously changed with COVID-19 and travel restrictions in place. But back in the 80s, when the promise of a glossy hotel was being planned, the idea was to target wealthy international travellers on the hunt for South Pacific sunshine. So it was going to be a Sheraton, and Sheraton at the time was a luxury hotel brand with a worldwide distribution, so it was going to make positioning the Cook Islands in the Northern Hemisphere relatively easy if we had a hotel like that. And someone who knows a bit about tourism is Ewan Smith. He's on the Cook Islands Tourism Board and founded Air Raratonga in the 1970s, flying its first domestic service between Raratonga and Aitutaki. So when a big hotel was going to be built on the island, it felt like a huge opportunity that would open doors for the cooks. And maybe best of all, someone else would pay for it. The Italian government uh, created an export credit scheme for its artisans and building companies, construction companies, to go out into the world and sell their expertise and materials with uh, government-backed finance. So they came around the South Pacific offering these turnkey hotel deals. One here, I think there was also one in Vanuatu. You know, you look at trying to establish a, a brand or, or a presence in overseas markets, particularly long-haul markets, for a small destination like the Cooks, it's very difficult. If you can coattail uh, or, or ride it on the coattails of a major hotel brand, it's a lot easier. The business proposition looked clear-cut, but that funding was going to have a sting in its tail. We'll see what I mean in a minute. In 1989, it was abundantly clear that those people were not going to come and stay in the three-and-a-half-star hotels that were in the Cook Islands. Meet Tim Arnold. He's been living in Daratonga for over two decades now, and he's been practising law there ever since he arrived. And thereafter, it became really very simple and straightforward. To guarantee the standard, you needed a reputable international operator, a reputable international operator would not go into a new destination and commit to the country marketing associated with the brand unless there were sufficient room nights to justify the investment. Which basically meant go big or go home. And so the absolute minimum that they would consider was around 150 rooms. It appeared to make sense that we have one four five star hotel of 200 rooms. Something else was happening at the same time in the Cook Islands. Sir Geoffrey Henry had come in to power in January 89. He'd been in opposition for a long time, following the 78 um, electoral petitions. And he was a man that wanted to achieve a great deal in a short space of time. And he had some interesting ideas about how governments could and should spend money. This was an opportunity to strike while the iron was hot. Sir Geoffrey was ambitious and wanted to put his stamp on the island. It seemed like a win-win situation. There was no way the cooks could afford to do this on their own. 
it would be handled by an offshore Italian company who would bring in their own labour and materials, and they'd also outsource their own staff once the hotel was complete. Back to Yveta. Some people from Italy arrived on Rarotonga, came to the government and said, we have $50 million, we're looking for a project, and we would be happy to build a hotel for you for $50 million. These are the Italian contractors. It's nothing sinister about it. There's a, an investment opportunity for the Italian government providing capital for Italian companies to find work overseas. If they got the contract to build a hotel, 80% of all the materials was to come from Italy. But as they say, the devil's in the detail. Well, it turned out to be a little bit of a sort of a shell game perpetrated by one Franco Picci, who was a travelling hotel salesman. He had persuaded politicians of the Democratic Party government in the late 80s that there was lots of Italian money to be had. It had to be spent on an Italian building contractor, but if they just signed on the dotted line, they would get a loan out of Italy, an Italian contractor out of Italy, and the next thing you know, we would have a beautiful hotel that we could all be proud of. The project was estimated to cost 60 million. So our government sort of said, yes, we'll take the money, it will find you a piece of land. Well, after about eight months, they have no lands. Prime Minister rang me in Wellington and asked me to come back to Rarotonga and find the land for them. So after a hunt, Yveta eventually identified five or six pieces of land in the mix but one stood out, the one belonging to Pa'ariki. And I started off with this land at Waimanga because it's one landowner, one lease on it. I negotiated the purchase of the lease from the Wigmore family. Robert Wigmore, who's my cousin, they had a long-term lease and it had about 14, 15 years to run. Having got an agreement from Robert Wigmore, then I had to meet with Pa'ariki at the time mother of the present Pariki, and we nutted out a deal for Pariki to lease the land to this government company which was going to build the hotel. Then the plans were done. Or so everyone thinks. Then they started the work. By, by then, eight million has already disappeared. And this is where things start to get even trickier. Tim Arnold again. In Italy, I understand that the Mafia, back in those days, was looking for ways to launder its money. And one of the ways it could launder its money was in the construction industry. And construction companies um, could make big money by building, wait for it, hotels and other large construction contracts elsewhere in the world. And part of the laundering involved getting some legitimate finance, and so Mafia money laundering construction projects elsewhere in the world were being guaranteed underwritten by the same Italian government agency. According to Tim, it's exactly what's happening in the Cooks with the Sheraton Hotel. Mafia involvement isn't a good look, but no one knows what's happening beneath the surface. Sadly, the builder was robbing Peter to pay Paul in terms of his building contracts, and it went broke shortly afterwards, having drawn down 20 million Deutschmarks, I think. 
the contractor was failing in their obligations. So they were sacked and replaced by another Italian construction company who seemed to make a lot of progress over the following six months or year. A new Italian company, Stephanie, stepped in and continued with the work. When the Italian government entity that was responsible for providing the money, when they stopped... Because the Italians had loaned all they could. The work was 80% completed. When it comes to money, nothing is free. Turns out the deal was different than first thought. It became clear very quickly that the money was a quite a hard-nosed loan, that the hotel wasn't a particularly good deal, there were no plans and specifications, that the builder had managed to be paid 7 million Deutschmarks, I think it was. It all went downhill from there. Lots of people will tell you that the mafia were involved in the building of this hotel, and that is simply not correct. But it's certainly the case that there is a mafia connection. We only needed another 12, 15 million to complete the whole project. But the reality was we allowed the drawdown, which should never have happened. Otherwise, we would have had enough money to nearly complete the project. The construction of the Sheraton came to a standstill, with an almost completed building beginning the slow process of decay as the costs began ballooning out. So overnight, a legitimate and competent um, Italian building company found itself unpaid with a bank that was not going to pay it. The Italian government began freezing its worldwide portfolio. Sadly, by 94-95, government financial train had run out of track and was about to plunge over a precipice. There was no way the Cook Islands government itself could be seen as a credible lender in terms of other sources of finance, even for the relatively small amount that was needed to finish it. But the costs kept mounting and mounting. After two years of the project being mothballed, the debt with the interests and the penalty interest was around $120 million. That's how much the debt was. And coming full circle, Yvette is drawn back into the project because by now the Cook Islands are nearly bankrupt. I was in Wellington and Sir Jeffrey, who was Prime Minister, then asked me to come and help clean it up. We had debts to the New Zealand government, we had debts to the Italian government, we had debts to the French government, we had debts to the Nauruan government. And that really, to me, is where we failed badly. We should have completed the project. We were in real trouble at the time. Yoveta hired a senior lawyer from Wellington who had a background in building. He prepared a report. Sadly, a lot of the documentation was not available. It was a disaster. We failed in many, many areas in managing the project. The debt was huge. The Cook Islands had borrowed from so many different sources, the list seemed endless and the debt impossible to repay. So I led the Cook Islands delegation to Manila. In Manila, and the first round with the Italians, was our first breakthrough. The Italians agreed to write off 50% of the debt from 120 to 60 odd million dollars gave us 30 years to pay it off at 2%, but no principal repayment the first five years. So that gave us a breathing time to either recover as a country in terms of our balance sheet or find a buyer. But again, in order to pay the various loans, 
they have to borrow even more money, keeping the vicious cycle in perpetual motion. And New Zealand was also on that never-ending list. We owed the New Zealand government a lot of money. Many Cook Island public servants were part of the New Zealand government superannuation scheme. So monies were being deducted from Cook Island public servants to be part of the scheme in New Zealand. Well, having deducted the money from Cook Island public servants, government spent the money instead of paying it to the New Zealand government uh, superannuation scheme. So they were there demanding $18 million, which has been scoffed off. Anyway, at the end of the day, they agreed to chop half and they left $6 million and they agreed to write it off over a period of years as part of the aid program. The, the Kiwis were very helpful at that time. Perhaps the curse still remains on Paariki's land because the project was never completed. All that remains is the derelict frame of a half-built grand hotel, an eyesore, a reminder of bad decisions and lost dreams. The now moss-covered building with its paint cracked beyond repair, electric wiring protrudes from internal walls, tiling has been smashed, bathroom fixtures show signs of abuse, used and destroyed by occasional squatters and gang members. Locals call the site Heartbreak Hotel. All it did was leave behind plenty of questions in its wake about the benefits and pitfalls of tourism for one. Basically the question is who was responsible for the balls up? It was expectation after an election that this stupid contract would be wiped out after the elections. But the next government, which was the Cook Islands Party government under Sir Geoffrey Henry, revived the thing and got it going. So both governments are responsible for this mess. Between the year 2000 and 2017, there were at least three more attempts and different developers who wanted to jumpstart the project. But nothing ever bore fruit. I mean, what happened after the failure of the Sheraton is the hazard uh, of a large internationally owned resort is that the distribution of benefits can be relatively narrow. It's a very vertical transaction, often bringing in a lot of uh, external labour and expertise to run that. And if it's foreign owned, then the profits are repatriated. So, you know, you've, you've got to have a really good reason to want one of those. Ewan says Cook Island's tourism looks very different to what was originally envisaged back when the plans for the Sheraton were in train. Today, there are a number of smaller hotels, guest houses and privately owned boutique-style accommodation catering to tourists. You have a very broad dispersal of direct economic benefit from tourism into the local community. So um, if you look at it, the number of people that are self-employed, own small businesses or have developed small businesses, holdings of their own on their own land, there's a lot of ways that you can get involved in tourism. The entry levels, entry barriers are very low. You know, and the demand's there. That demand will hopefully be there once we're COVID-free and the borders are open once again. Lawyer Tim Arnold's involvement in the projects continued for two decades and it doesn't look like there's any answer in sight. He's overseeing that same piece of land that the Sheraton was to be built on, the same one cursed by Metua and leased by William Wigmore the land owned by the current Pā Te Ariki Upokotini, or Pā Ariki for short. He says the government's unclear about what can be done, so things are at a standstill. 
Because the government has acknowledged that it is Pa's land. It can't, on the one hand, say that it wants to be developed in a particular way, but on the other hand, say, yes, but please just sit there on your hands. Having the tourism industry in the Cook Islands was important. It provided an economic uh, base for the Cook Islands. But the sad thing is that today, all our economic activities is tourism. In other words, all our you know, eggs in one basket. So there's a need for government to look at other things and uh, whatever that is. And perhaps now, with COVID slowing things down, it gives countries like the Cook Islands some time to think about how the future might look and where the opportunities lie. You're listening to Untold Pacific in an episode on Raratonga and the Sheraton Hotel. I'm your host, Koro Vakauta, and the series is produced by Sonia Yee. This podcast was made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Special thanks to Ngā Sound and Vision for archival audio and raw interview resources and material provided courtesy of Tiki Lounge Productions. The executive producer for the RNZ podcast and series team is Tim Watkin. If you'd like to listen again or find out more, head to the RNZ podcast page and look up Untold Pacific, where there's also associated video series by Tiki Lounge. You can also download the series wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you again next time. Tofa Sufua.